Well, kia ora and welcome to Thomas Coughlin uh, on to this hoon about monetary, fiscal, economic policy from the press gallery. And this week, Thomas, we've all been focused on the new National Party leader, uh, Christopher Luxon or Chris Luxon or CML, as he sometimes is referred to. Um, how do you think he went against uh, Jacinda Ardern in Parliament? First uh, couple of days of question time and the general debate. Uh, I I sort of thought it's interesting. There's been a lot of commentary around this, and everyone has differing opinions. I was I was roundly told I thought he did did fine actually, um, and I was roundly told that I was watching a different question time to everyone <laughs> to everyone else. For some people, but then other people thought he did quite well as well. So I'm not I'm not there on my own. I think with question time, the government usually wins because the government has all the information, and it's very hard as the opposition. Um, to especially with a speaker like Trevor Mallard, who, who's, who can be pretty tough uh, sometimes, um, to, to to score a kind of hit. But but considering he's only been there for a year, I thought he actually did a good a good job. Um, a decent, I thought it was a decent. I, I, Barry Sober actually said that he thought he um, he chose the wrong topic. I'd actually disagree with that. I think the topic he chose the first day, which was um, which was. Um, Gosh, uh, uh, ICU beds. <laughs> it's been a long week. Um, was yeah, a good one. No, no, it's a, no. it's he, he did actually. He did quite a good job of essentially calling out the government on why Auckland wasn't already in orange yeah. and why the rest of the country wasn't in green, which is a very, a very um, good point. You know, given that we know that mm. Blackfield uh, recommended the government to put much of the country into green immediately and to open up Auckland and go to go to um, red or orange immediately. Yeah. Essentially, the question he was asking was, so what's your criteria for moving down? And it's a question I asked the Prime Minister as well. And, and she's always been very vague about it because it gives her lots of optionality and the ability to... Um, what she likes, she likes that those options. She's, you know, yeah, which any yeah. politician does. But I, I think the problem with the alert level system by the end of it, it actually did have quite a quite a rigid criteria, like quite a strict criteria criteria that everyone understood. It had, it had eight eight criteria, four health criteria, four other criteria. Um, but the the traffic light system, it's not you know the, this this idea of the health system being overwhelmed. Um, the health system being stressed or the health, health system coping, well, I mean, I suppose we do know what an overloaded health system looks like, but it's not quite, the, the, the distinctions between an orange and a red or a, a green and, a, and an orange are not quite clear. And to be honest, I think he does have a point that that the, the criteria around the health system in Auckland, uh, it, it would appear that Auckland is, I mean, by my definition, Auckland would be in a green or an orange um, in terms of the health system. Like, it does sound quite stressed out there potentially in some cases, but it certainly doesn't look like it's overwhelmed. And if it is overwhelmed, then crikey, we've got, we've got something coming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is when you've got around 100 cases a day and you've got about 100 people in hospital and less than 10 in ICU, then that sounds stable and controllable. And that's what um, the ministry seems to be saying regularly is that our hospital system can cope with that. Mm. Well, um, then Auckland should be lower. And the, the reason I think Auckland is not lower is because the Prime Minister has, in effect, tried to have her cake and eat it too by uh, giving Aucklanders some freedom but not allowing them to open up and, and go spreading stuff to those DHPs who aren't ready yet. And by not specifying the thresholds for shifting from uh, traffic light to traffic light, she gives herself the the um, the freedom to essentially um, 
say two things at once without being called out on. Yeah, and that's the, that's the that's the guts. And I think he he actually did quite good at, at trying to nail that down. And uh, I thought it was an okay start because um, apart from anything else, the Beltway and you and I yeah. are, are right in the middle. Of it, and I'm sure there's everyone else is on Twitter uh, having it having their ten cents worth as well. Yeah, or maybe their point naught 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 six three Bitcoin worth. <laughs> um, uh, we're, um, you know, obviously coming at it from two very um, yeah. partisan I, sides. I, I, I think he, for, didn't, he didn't lose, which I think is your important, like the important yeah. thing. If it, if it walked away having had his ass kicked, then I think that would have been a problem for him. But he definitely didn't lose and possibly, you know, you could call that a draw. I mean, obviously that he had that, that screw up with his notes. But even the opposition, um, I was talking to them, uh, seen a few MPs in the opposition, and, and even they weren't, weren't too keen to sort of put the boot in on that. Because, I mean, frankly, who hasn't kind of... You know, fluff with their fluff with their lines. Um, who hasn't misplaced their their speaking notes in the house? I think it's a it's a sin that everyone everyone commits. Even though you're not supposed to read your notes in, in the houses, that's yeah. The rules. But yeah, no, it. it was it was an awkward moment, and you can see how that's been stored away in the archives for oh, um, yes. when things get ugly. It'll it'll be it'll get replayed a gazillion times. Oh yeah, but, um, I, think you're, I think you're right. <laughs> it's it's all about the context of it, and so, so for example. Uh, Boris Johnson's Peppa Pig um, <laughs> disaster. Peppa Pig esque. Yeah, that really, that really is about people seeing him floundering and um, looking a bit of a joke. Um, this is after two years of being a prime minister who's been floundering, and looking a bit of a joke. So, mm. um, I, th- I think he might, he might get by on that one. And actually, I think he did quite well. With that um, initial landmine that uh, was lobbed in front of him, when Simon Bridges accidentally, on purpose, <laughs> said that Adrian Orr probably shouldn't be reappointed, which is not something you'd say if you're a mainstream no, opposition politician. Yeah, that was and they an managed to, to wriggle out of it. Okay. Yeah, I, that was. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I, th- I saw. I thought your Twitter thread on that was 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 really good. It was not. Um, yeah, it's one of those. It's, 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 it says a lot, I think, about the power dynamics in the National Party at the moment, where Simon Bridges, um, you know, obviously a former leader and a former leadership contender, and quite a powerful finance spokesperson, unlike unlike Andrew Bailey and, and Michael Woodhouse and, and Paul Goldsmith um, before that, who I suppose owed their position to their leaders' popularity. Simon has his own independent power base, and and him feeling confident enough to make a captain's call. Um, on that podcast and say, actually, yep, no, I'm totally, I'm a, I'm a righty, and, and I think that Adrian should go. That's quite, that, that that speaks to the level of power that he thinks he has in the National Party right now, I think. that Because ordinarily, no spokesperson would ever, I mean, you, you know how frustrating it is. You are, you, spokespeople <laughs> won't commit to tying their shoes unless they've had it signed off by the leader beforehand. It's quite incredible that Simon actually thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going to call for this. Uh, I'm going to well not call for this. I'm going to I'm going to agree that this is something that should happen. I know it's probably going to you know make a uh, lead to a some something of a news cycle. And he just went ahead and did it. So I think it, it certainly speaks to a level of of confidence that Simon has. Yeah, speaking of confidence, um, Christopher Luxon has sort of given the National Party and that caucus a shot of confidence going into all of the barbecue discussions over over the summer. And um, interestingly, I thought the decision by Business New Zealand to come out with quite a mm. song and dance to pull out of the tripartite arrangement on fair pay agreements 
suggested to me there's a few other people around town who are feeling a bit more confident about their side uh, having a real shot in 2023, whereas even a couple of weeks ago, um, you'd want to hedge your bets a bit more before you bench bridges. Well, I I mean, all of that kind of, um, like the top end of town, um, which obviously, you know, includes Business New Zealand as their church and, you know, the big banks and, and, and corporate New Zealand, um, have kind of swung in behind the Labour Party recently and have been kind of um, playing along with the, the Labour Party co-papa because, uh, you know, Labour, Labour, Labour is the only um, viable centre-right party in New Zealand, um, they would say, and I think I think people to the left of Labour would say. And and so you really, there was no option but for, the, for, those, um, for those groups to, to, you know, fall in behind Labour. And it's been quite, it's been quite amusing really seeing... These these organisations and companies that and you and I were there in 2018 when when they were fermenting um, out the winter of uh, discontent, um, <laughs> with the, the grumpy business confidence surveys etc. Uh, they're now you know taking part in various working groups and giving nice quotes about various government initiatives, including you know this this fair pay agreement stuff, which is a fairly um, fairly bolshy kind of uh, 1970s style. Not compulsory unionism, but but I guess it, it gives it gives unions a new place in civil society, which they have not had before. Yeah. Um, Essentially, it's trying to undo the Employment Contracts Act, which the last Labor government under Helen Clark mm. didn't really um, unravel properly. Yeah, repealed in name only. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I think um, it, it's interesting that they've pulled out. You, they were probably always never going to. Yeah, well, Michael Wood said they did always oppose it. They never liked them. You know, Business New Zealand were always on the record saying it wasn't really their cup of tea. But, yeah, this is something else. it has been a a real feature (laughs) of the last couple of years that Business New Zealand, and Kirk Hope in particular, has been remarkably close, connected, Mm. cooperative with the government, particularly over COVID, when Mm -hmm. there was that extraordinary press release on the day of the um, first lockdown announcements Mm. where the CTU and the Business New Zealand came out together mm. in a joint press release to essentially back the government's stance on shutting the economy down. Yeah. I mean, that is something else. Yeah, well, corporate New Zealand was into lockdowns for a while. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's right. They were, that first lockdown was, I mean, you know, there's that uh, there's that argument that corporate, you know, again, the top end of town were, were keen for the government to move faster on that first lockdown. Um, and Adun moved slower because she didn't think that she could bring the public with her if she just put everyone into level four immediately. And she she moved over the course of a week. But the the, the corporate New Zealand was was pretty keen on lockdown now. And she needed that uh, that air cover at the time. Oh, she and, did, uh, yeah. And she got it. It wouldn't have and worked otherwise. That's right. That's why I'm interested in this um, Business New Zealand um, walking away from it. Do you mm. think they might uh, do something similar on social insurance? You did a good scoop uh, a week or two ago about how the mm. government was close to coming out with a with a proposal for social insurance, which was another one of these tripartite CTU yeah. Business New Zealand government things. Well, so, so yeah, it's inter- interesting that that social insurance story was, was my scoop that I finished on Wednesday night two weeks ago, and I finished it, <laughs> went home for dinner, and then got the press release from Judith Collins, <laughs> and I thought, no, I've been I've been scooped by. By Bloody news. National Party. Fortunately, actually, a lot of people, I, I can say that a lot of people read it, so people people were still interested in it, which is really good. So it, it, it did get really good readership. But yeah, this is this is the proposal to create an ACC-style unemployment insurance system. So you, you, if you get laid off um, or if you if you can't work because of an injury, then you, you get 80% of your income up to a certain cap, and it's funded by a 1% to 2% levy. 
on on um, on individual uh, owners and companies. And uh, you know, so there's something they announced that they were keen to do in the budget. They got Business New Zealand um, on board and, and the CTU. Uh, on business New Zealand, New Zealand pulling away from that. I mean, apparently they've, they've already they've, they've they've agreed to options that will be put out for consultation next year. So that's all that's all been um, been locked in. So it'd be pretty staggering if they walked away from from that having already agreed to it with the CTU and the government. So I'd be really, it would look quite poor of business New Zealand to to do that because they they agreed to un- the the social and unemployment insurance in a way that they never agreed to the fair pay agreements. Yeah, but, but there are some gnarly issues in there for business leaders because you're right. Yeah. It, it all depends on who takes the pain. If mm. you get a three percent. Um, social insurance payout, the idea is you'd have 1% government, 1% worker, 1% mm. employee, employer. And also just the shape of the scheme, whether it includes some sort of sickness compensation, mm. that's the missing link at the moment in our uh, sickness, disability, accident insurance system. Accidents mm. are covered by ACC. Disability in a, from an accident is. Mm. But if you happen to get sick on the job, particularly, you know, things like mental health or, you know, um, various other sicknesses, illnesses, you're in a bit of trouble in New Zealand. And I know the CTU are keen to try and bring sickness into the into the list. But, of course, there's a few business leaders who are not so keen on that. So I think there are still some points of contention. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be I mean, so, so my my understanding of it is, yeah, I mean, this this sort of sickness stuff. So sickness, I believe, is is included in this. If you can't work because you are sick, you, you will. And in that, in that sense, it, it plugs the hole that's left by ACC. I don't think you get, it's, it won't cover sort of treatment in the way that, that, you know, you can get ACC for going to a chiropractor or something. But it will it will cover your earnings uh, loss if you are, if you're unable to work uh, because you're sick. And that, that is huge. I mean, there is... I think it's the politics of this are difficult. I asked Chris Luxon about it this week. He said he didn't like it because it's a tax. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a bit, <laughs> Chris Luxon sort of has this automaton-like quality <laughs> that you ask him these these questions and he sort of spits it out just like every other national leader's done the last three years, but in a slightly more um, saleable way. You do, you do wonder when he's going to be a bit more reflective. Because yeah, my do, sense yeah. of the National Party at the moment, apart from maybe Simon Bridges actually, is that they are still living off the doctrine of the early 90s. And they haven't understood or listened or heard about the big debates that are happening in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly around the the, uh, the grown-ups at the IMF, the OECD, the World Bank, you know, Christine Lagarde, you know, all of the people in the EU, even the Fed. You know, the Fed's employing diversity, diversity governors and uh, talking a lot about climate change and worrying a lot about inclusiveness and... Um, just transitions. It's just it's just as if the National Party have yet to sort of um, be directed to the OECD website to understand that the rest <laughs> of the world's moved on a bit. Do you, do you sense that he's open to you know? Um, I suppose you'd call it a, the a conservative third way. Yeah, but I mean, this you look at his career at Air New Zealand, which is obviously quite keen to make a lot of. And, mm. you know, he was one of the more progressive business leaders. Uh, he was, mm. I mean, he, he signed up to the, he was the, um, I think he was the, the, the chair, I forget the, the, the name they gave it, but he was the, the main business person on the government's business advisory council. I think I think it was the, the, the it was a council, yeah, chair. Um, and, you know, yeah, he led diversity and inclusion schemes in New Zealand. Um that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, he is. I mean, for a business leader, he is fairly progressive. But on on those issues, yeah, I think the the big choice for him will be climate change. Um, national, I think national's got a bit of a problem there because they they obviously have that rural um, 
backbone, mm. which they've been, uh, and people have accused them of abandoning that recently, given they, they very, um, until the last couple of months, they didn't have any rural representation on the board, and their their caucus mm. is fairly denuded of rural talent uh, now as well, given, and, but they've only got themselves to blame for that because they got their ass kicked. Absolutely, um, but um, but uh, that that is like that is an issue for them to solve. Um, but that, that, that they're sort of being pulled both ways because the you know again the top end of town those those big corporates yeah. are quite into. It. I mean, you know, people call it greenwashing, and hey, let's face it, like a lot of it is greenwashing. But the top end of town knows that 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 the governments are getting pretty serious about this, and um, and it is quite keen to adapt in a way that's sort of sensible and. Um, and meaningful because they know that the costs are coming down the pipes and the insurers, the banks are pretty scared about climate change and adaptation because they know that they're going to have to wear a lot of it. So I think National's torn between this kind of groundswell, you know, getting into the groundswell, pulling some of them back from that. But the banks are in their ear saying, actually, folks, you know, if if we don't do something serious about emissions and if we don't do something serious about agricultural emissions, then the, the, the top end of town, the industrial emitters and the transport um, emitters and all, all the other emissions in New Zealand are going to have to do the heavy lifting while agriculture gets a free pass. So agriculture is not just dividing New Zealand in terms of climate change. It, it could be dividing the National Party as well because, hey, you know, farmers don't want to pay extra, which is, you know, no one, hey, who does? But the top end of town doesn't want to either. And I think, you know, ultimately... Um, Money talks and money money talks in the National Party of all places, right? <laughs> so I think I think he might be might be pulled um, pulled in the direction of the of the top end of town. But you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to it's say at this stage. He's only been there for well, a week. It's so. interesting that the top end of town don't actually do do a lot of um, donating to the parties. When you have a look at the lists yeah. of donors, um, they're not in there. It's not like in America where no. you know they put billions of dollars into super PACs. Here. Um, the, there's a, there's a certain strand of business who say, actually, mm. I don't need to buy access. I've got their freaking mobile numbers. I'll just ring them up. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so why am I spending money on one party mm. or another? Um, I'll get beaten up by both of them. I just won't spend any money at all. And, um, and, and it's considered a wee my... bit uncool to, to do that as yeah. well in New Zealand, I think. Which, and yeah. a lot made that last, I think. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to look hey, like you're buying just, just, just thinking about Luxon's um, choices for his front bench, do you think that gives us any indication that he is going to steer away from, I suppose you could call it the knee-jerk, you know, um, populist conservative thing that Judith occasionally indulged in? Yeah, I mean, he's certainly indulged the libs in the party. I mean, there are three big liberal voices. You could you could say that Matt Ducey is possibly another liberal voice, um, and mm. he's he's one as well. But the th- you know the three big libs are uh, Chris Bishop, Nicola Willis, and Erica Stanford, and they've all done very well mm. in the top ten. I think that 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 possibly makes it difficult for him um, because he's got a party of thirty three people. There were three there were three liberals in that party of thirty three, and they're all in the top ten. So that <laughs> that that will make it. Um, that will be difficult for him to manage. Um, so yeah, and, and, but none of them are populist. So that, I think that will probably, you know, that's that's something that they've got um, have got going for them in terms of not not um, leaning towards populism. Shane Ritty on health was 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 one of. I mean, Judith <laughs> Judith was a populist, um, but Shane was not, and his survival suggests that 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 is not a road that he will go down. Simon Simon <laughs> Simon is very interesting. He can be a populist, but he's also one of the you know smartest people in Parliament. Um, you know, like, like stuff like that UN migration compact thing he did was just bonkers. 
Um, and some of his fiscal calls are, can be fairly populist, but he's actually, you know, he, like he gets it, and I think he 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 gets he gets political issues, and he he gets good angles at which to come from them. So yeah, possibly the the one, the one with question marks is probably Simeon Brown, who I think is number nine. I think Simeon is Simeon's nine, and he's been given transport, which is a big climate portfolio. What's um, the, and what's the background service. there? Because I, I thought he was in that sort of you know conservative Auckland. Judith Kemp. Yeah, no, he. Uh, yeah, he is. I think. I think. I think Chris Luxon was looking to reward hardworking MPs, and Simeon is is one of the harder. You know, he's a, he's incredibly hard work, and he's a good. He gets. I think he gets those good populist issues for the Nats. Like like gangs are a good issue for national government is weak on gangs, uh, and 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 you know, hitting that issue over and over again did, did appear to work um, for Simon. So I think that that is possibly something that that's more of a political decision putting it out there. But he's a, he is a hard worker. But I think I think as well, um, it's National's always had a thing about having Auckland-based transport spokespeople. Um, they think that that works, and they haven't had one for a while. Chris Bishop's obviously from the hut. Um, and then he lost it to David Bennett, who was from Hamilton. Uh, and Michael Woodhouse, they had Michael Woodhouse do it for oh, a while right, from yeah. Dunedin. And I mean, I mean, the transport spokesperson from Dunedin, which for, for, I, <laughs> Dunedin listeners might, might correct me, but it, it possibly doesn't have the transport problems that Auckland does. Yes. So, so um, yeah, it, it, I think that's possibly it as well. Auckland, particularly yeah. South Auckland, right, like that, that Mill Road thing has um, has got the Nets oven arms. So now, one of the things I found most interesting from um, Christopher Luxon's first press conference and on victory speech, was uh, the question from Henry Cook about a townhouse nation. Maybe I'm the only one who calls it the townhouse nation record, but <laughs> I, that's what I think. Uh, the Judith Collins, Nicola Willis special on three stories, uh, three dwellings per mm. section, which um, was a lightning rod that went right up the fundament of a whole bunch of conservative um, leaning councillors and politicians, particularly in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. And, uh, you know, uh, that was one of Judith's calls that wasn't very popular with the, the, with the rank and file of the National Party. Uh, but um, both Labour and National have softened that townhouse accord this week when mm. we heard that the committee had come back from the committee stage after the first reading with a uh, reduction in the maximum height for these buildings from six metres to five metres, which is going to carve about 4% mm. off the expected increase in housing supply. So do you think that they've done enough to keep the NIMBYs quiet or is uh, this going to keep um, being a, a, uh, an ugly one for both sides? Well, I mean, I think it can't be an ugly one for them both when it passes. They won't let it mm. be an ugly one like Labour and National between them control 75 80 percent of the vote um so act will act will bang the drum but national and national labor won't let them have um have it i think and and i think i think the big political issue for for i mean th this was one of the issues that i think contributed to judith being rolled is that we um we were hearing from some some rebellious national MPs that they were they were outraged by this deal um right. and uh and i put it to judith 
about a month ago when our, we do our weekly interview, and I just sort of said, you know, have you have you spoken with any of your MPs about this? Because we're, we're hearing that 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 some of your Auckland MPs are pretty pissed off, and um and she sort of said, well, I, you know, I can't speak to any of the private conversations that I had with my MPs, which basically means that yes. <laughs> yes, I have been having these conversations, and um, and 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 we had a really interesting interview where where she she kind of um, unloaded on Auckland Council and Phil Goth, who uh, and uh, who were uh, making arguments about the aesthetic values of these buildings, and she basically said, "You know what's ugly is homelessness." Yeah, um, so put that in your, smoke, in your pipe and smoke it, and um, and she yeah she became a total yimby saying, "Yeah, homelessness is the ugliest thing I've ever seen," and frankly, you know, some of these unitary plan houses that that um, that that Phil Goff keeps banging on about are pretty ugly as well. So don't talk to me about my medium density uh, standard um, houses being ugly. Thank you very much. Um, but it did it did keep rumbling on. And, and Simon O'Connor, I thought, took the incredible step of of saying that that the housing accord was evidence of of Collins's poor judgment. Um, you know, along with the, when he did his press conference, well, not when he was stopped on his way into Parliament the night after the, the day after the press release went out, he talked about the press release obviously being an error of judgment, and then he, he he lumped it in with the housing accord. So you think, well, people must be pretty pissed off indeed if this is um, if if you're if you're sort of making the, the comparison between this housing accord and that late night press release, which really was quite a crazy thing to do. Um, but did you, did you see the modelling they put out? The modelling they put out said about I think the the original um, the original um, bill would have would have allowed eighty thousand houses to be built in Auckland in the next five to eight years, which is an increase on around forty thousand houses. So you're basically doubling the capacity of Auckland of the Auckland build in, in five to eight years. And the um, what they've done was trim it from five meters. The, the height to boundary ratio is from five meters to sorry from six meters to five meters down to four meters. Um, but they think that this will only result in one thousand nine hundred fewer houses being built. I think was the number, which is it doesn't sound that bad. It almost doesn't sound believable, frankly. Um, so maybe maybe I'm just just overly credulous. But, um, but I think they've thrown a bone to the NIMBYs. Yeah, but um, they're pushing ahead. Uh, yeah, and I suspect most run. sensible people around the table who've looked at this can see that something is needed to break the logjam, but it'd be quite nice to uh, trim the rough edges off it so that uh, it takes some of the pain out of it. Hmm. But it won't no. go away, particularly no. because the councils don't buy it and the government and the opposition have fundamentally not dealt with the infrastructure problems, which yeah. ACT is very good at pointing to. But in a disingenuous, you could argue disingenuous way, because it's very convenient for for, um, uh, for David Seymour. Um, yeah, the interesting, or at least he's been consistent on it with the GST stuff and, and infrastructure. Yeah, and um, uh, councils still still have the ability to to allow some sections to be protected through. Um, uh, special considerations, I think. I forget the um, the exact term. Um, oh gosh, it's gone. No, but 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 uh, so so there is still a chance that councils will have their way. But 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 Rachel Brooking, the chair of the, the sorry, the deputy chair, I think, of the Environment Committee, um, said uh, that that this she doesn't believe that this the the the, the, the measures that councils have to um, to. Uh, have some uh, just, um, control over what is built will uh, ultimately involve in fewer houses being built because it, it has to be applied section to section, I believe. So All there right. you go. Anyway, that's your that's so, that's your um, your council yeah. involvement. <laughs> yeah. 
So just looking ahead to next week, um, a big week economically. We've got the half-yearly fiscal and economic update, uh, as well as the GDP figures. Um, how's the government shaping up uh, for next week, which will be the last real chance to do anything substantial and and indicate how they're um, organising themselves for the last budget push before next year's budget, which is supposedly all about climate change. Yeah, well, I, I um, actually, I'm, I'm currently, uh, by the time this, this podcast comes out, I will have published a story which will be all about that. Uh, so they are going to announce um, the way that they will fund climate uh, stuff and the budget um, okay. and the BPS next week. Um, so you can you can listen to that in this podcast or on the Herald. So they've got their big, um, they've got their, 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 that they promised in the last budget to look at the ways of hypothecating ETS funding to pay for climate change. Um, so that's a few billion dollars, well, about a yeah, little over a billion dollars a year increasing each year. So that, 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 that there are li- there's likely to be some detail around how that will actually work. Um, and I think they're looking at other funding measures because of the Grant Robertson's had this public finance um, review thing ongoing in the background, which looks at, at public finance act issues in terms of funding long term infrastructure to deal with climate or long term appropriations for climate change. And I, I, I've, you know, I think the public finance act is more the. I'm not sure it's the um, it's the stuff that you're so critical of, Bernard, which is the, the debt uh, target stuff. That stuff that was was incorporated by Michael Cullen when he repealed the. Um, the Fiscal Responsibility Act. I think this is possibly the the original, really pure 1989 Public Finance Act, which is the the accounting, just the boring accounting standards that were were put in the original Public Finance Act, which I think forced quite rigorous annualised appropriations on on each um, each part of the government. And I think that's really difficult for climate change because they're looking at longer spreading the spending over longer periods of time. And so they're possibly going to look at, at ways of fixing that. What the interesting question will be for me is, I think, the, the question around um, around where they've set the allowances. I think they'll probably set them quite small because they spent a lot of money last year and they don't want to give national a stick to beat them with. But I'm, I think Grant will do that thing that he always does and every finance minister always does is that, you know, next May he'll find an extra billion dollars down the back of the couch. So I'm, 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 I'm expecting to see it. Yeah, I know. I'm expecting to see. I mean, when the, the BPS, I guess, is the is is equally exciting as the as Haifu, and I'm I'm expecting the BPS to have operating allowances of the high two billions or low three billions of dollars. I think in their election manifesto, they promised two point six bill, and I think that we'll probably see something in the high twos or the low threes, and then 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 it will go up to above three billion in the budget. My take, my two cents. Yeah, 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 and it'll be interesting to see what how they manage to. Um waive the Public Finance Act wand to um, spend money on climate. My, my view is that Treasury is still not doing a good enough job of um, being, um, of analysing the long-term costs and liabilities of uh, not dealing with climate change or housing affordability and isn't putting those uh, liabilities into their accounts in any sort of useful accrual accounting way. Mm. And um, that means issue. that for, forever and a day, yeah, 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 and it means that forever and a day, um, the Treasury can never justify long-term investment in anything. And uh, essentially that just plays into this basic problem we've got with infrastructure. Hey, I really appreciate your time, Thomas. It's a busy day and um, we've really done a great lap around the traps. Thank you very much. And I wish you all the best. I'll be looking out for that scoop 
on the yeah, <laughs> on the uh, high effort. Tomorrow, Thank tomorrow morning. No, no worries. <laughs> All right. Good, good, good on you. Thanks. Thank for... you.